Turn to Revelation 16. Last week we got into verse 16. Um, after we focused primarily on verse 15. The uh, reminder there to us living today. Who as part of the church won't be involved in what's happening here on the earth. Until Christ opens heaven and comes back. But it's a reminder that when He comes, when He comes for His church, and when He comes again, He comes as a thief. He doesn't come laying it all out. He doesn't do what the U.S. government is wont to do and announce to the world what its plans are when it's going to uh, attack someone in the modern media age. He doesn't do that. He comes as a thief. And as a result of that, we are told to watch and keep our garments, to be on guard. And as Christians, we know what those garments are. We're told what they are. In the context of Paul's warning in 1 Thessalonians, when he talks about the rapture, we're told to keep the same garments that we're told to clothe ourselves with in Ephesians. One of which is having our loins girt about with truth. The physical center of our body girt with God's truth, which is found in His Word. Not constantly going around like pot in, in modeling ourselves after Pilate. What is truth? There's a lot of so-called Christians that struggle over issues. They struggle over this position versus this position, or this scripture versus this scripture. And it's constantly an attitude of what is truth. You have to come to a point in your walk with Christ where you stop being a child and you grow up and be a man. Paul said, when I was a child, I spake as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. There's a time when we've got to do what adults do and make a decision. Decide what we believe. Why we believe it, not because of what some man says, but because we've searched the scripture and actually take a position. It's the coward that doesn't take a position. So we've got to come to that point. We've got to watch and keep our garments lest our nakedness be exposed. That was the focus of last week. And then we got into verse 16. And he, that is God... Using the, the devils are accomplishing His will when they go out to gather the nations. They accomplish His will, even though they think they're not. Caiaphas, the high priest, spoke prophetically, completely unbeknownst to him concerning Jesus, when he made his argument to the Sanhedrin that it must be that one man die for the people. Well, of course. That's exactly as God ordained it to be, that the Son of God die for the sins of the people. So He, in His evil... Fulfilled God's will. He, God, gathered them into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Last week we introduced this. I passed out a couple of maps to just kind of give you an idea of where this place is. The word Armageddon is a Greek transliteration that comes from the Hebrew Har, which means hill or mountain, Megiddo. Hill of Megiddo, hill of the crowded. Megiddo is both a hill or a tell and a valley in the land of Israel. This is a, a relief map of the area of northern Samaria and the Galilee. The Galilee is in here. 
The goal line is up here. This is borders drawn uh, in terms of the modern state of Israel. And I showed you how the point of Megiddo is right down here. There's a little, looks like a little valley that connects this valley to the plain of Sharon. And we talked about it being a crossroads. I spoke about the highways that go through there today and Mount Carmel dividing or forking this valley and how it was a great crossroads. You can look on this map here of the roads of Israel during the Roman Empire. And if you look just above and to the left of the L in Galilee, that would have been uh, Tel Megiddo or the Hill of Megiddo. And you can see some major roads, the King's Highway, Via Maurice. These things connected Europe and Asia with Africa through the Middle East. We talked about how coming off the, down the, the plain of Megiddo from, from the bay at Haifa and Akko, the ancient crusader fortress, you know, the ports there, that uh, you really can get to this place in Israel from any continent, even Antarctica, if you wanted to leave there in a ship. If one of the weathermen down there wanted to get in a ship and come, he could. And you don't have to traverse another continent to get there. You can get to this place from any continent without going through another continent. It's a true crossroads that's been historic throughout history in, you know, in terms of military uh, engagements, in terms of the migration of peoples, uh, and in terms of general movement. And so we introduced that a little bit. We talked about how the sixth seal or sixth vile judgment is more the gathering. And the seventh vial is the actual battle when Christ himself steps in. Um, we talked about it being a strategic location, a crossroads, so forth and so on. Then I gave you an assignment. I gave you an assignment to see if you could tell me there were at least three great Old Testament victories that happened for the people of Israel in the valley of Megiddo or at the place of Megiddo. And there were also three great Old Testament tragedies or disasters that took place there. And I wanted to look at them today because some of these are prophetic pictures of what's going to happen at this last battle. Um, anybody can tell me who the, where the, the three great Old Testament victories were there in the valley? Yes, he did. Judges chapter 7. That's the last of the three. Okay, that's right. Judges 4 is the account. Judges 5 is a psalm. Judges 4 and 5. Amen. That's right. Joshua 11 and 12. Joshua and the people of Israel undertook their campaign in northern Canaan and overthrew the kings and were able to conquer. And that, the capital of which was Hatsor. Hatsor was a little north of the Sea of Galilee, but this was confederate with the other Canaanite kings who came down in mass into the plain. Hatsor was one of three cities that God put under the ban. The Israelites were told to completely destroy everything in these three cities. Men, women, children, ox, ass, everything and burn it to the ground because they were such wicked places of idolatry. Hatsor was one of those. Who knows what the other two were? One of them was the very first city that was conquered. And it was Jericho. And then what was the second one? Anybody know? 
They had attempted to overthrow it once, but yeah. because of sin in the camp, it was a failure. Jericho, Ai, and Hatzul. God put them under the ban. People accuse God of being a God of genocide. Well, if God was genocidal, he wouldn't have spared uh, 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 Rahab and her family from the city of Jericho. If God was, a, was, was a, a genocidal, then every single inhabitant of that land would have been massacred. But God does judge sin, and the one who creates us, who are we to say to him who creates us, why? Anyway, if God wants to destroy what he made, he has every right to do so. And we can either argue about that and get our feelings all twisted in knots over that, or we can accept it for what it is. We can be like those who complain about God and wonder about God and why would He do this and why would He do that and concern ourselves whether or not God's on our side. Or we can be, like President Lincoln answered someone during the Civil War, more concerned about whether or not we're on His side. And we can know whether or not we're on His side based on what He says in His Word. So there were three great Old Testament victories there in the Valley of Megiddo. The valley, the hill, it's kind of a connecting point. It's also called the plain of Esdraelon. Some of us in here have been to Israel and you can see the valley of Megiddo really well from the summit of Mount Gilboa. There's a tower up there. You can see it really well looking back or on the way up to the summit of Mount Carmel. You can get a lower view of it as it kind of comes together from... uh, Around Mount Carmel, there's kind of a Y that comes up from the coastal plain and it comes together and goes east toward the Jordan Valley. You can see it from Tel Megiddo. Tel Megiddo is a historic, uh, an archaeological site in Israel. It's part of the national park system there and you can visit it. It was an ancient fortress that was used over the years and the ruins are there. There's cisterns where they kept the water. You can walk down in there. You can see the remains of buildings up top and it's literally right there at the end of the Mount Carmel Massif that comes down and it's at that junction where the valleys come in. So you can see a really good view of the valley. I was up there late at night. I mean, we were up on that the slopes of Carmel late at night and it was kind of interesting in the fog to watch all the lights of the traffic and the places down there. So it's very visible. It's a very wide valley. You can approach it from the east. You can approach it from the south. You can approach it from the north. But... Joshua chapter 11. Uh, Let's turn there for a moment. This was a place of great victory for the Israelites when they came into the land of Canaan. This is what's called the northern campaign. When Israel came into the land, they cut the land in half. They conquered the center part and then they fought against and defeated the, the confederation of kings from the south. And then they hit the north. They split the line in the middle and then went after the two parts. You know, that's why a lot of military commanders in history have actually studied the campaigns of Joshua. Um, You know, even General Stonewall Jackson from Civil War days talked about studying the Old Testament military campaigns as he prepared to uh, attack or to plan his battles. It says in Joshua 11 verse 2, and the kings to the kings that were on the north of the mountains and of the plains south of Kinneroth. Kinneroth or Kinneret is the Sea of Galilee. In fact, if you go there today in Hebrew, it's called Kinneret. Usually when I talk to Israelis about camping and loving to camp on the Sea of Galilee, I will say Kinneret 
because they understand what I'm talking about. So the plain south of Kinneret is the Jezreel Valley or the, the, the plain of Esdraelon. And so the kings of the mountains in the north, there's hills north of Galilee and around it, and the kings of the plains south of Kinneret, and in the valley and in the borders of Dor on the west. So all of these kings came to, or were confederated together. Then it says in verse 4, And they went out, and all their host with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude, with horses and chariots very many. And when all these kings were met together, they came and pitched together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Now, some people try to say that the waters of Merom are up there north of, of the Sea of Galilee in the hills. Well, what's described here is an immense number of people like the sand of the sea and an immense number of chariots. Uh, there's only one natural geographic place where it would have made sense for a an army that size with that many chariots to go. And it's not up in the mountains north of the Sea of Galilee. The waters of Merim were over toward Megiddo. They were gathered in the natural place to go against Israel. And Israel was extremely outnumbered here. But the Lord gave them victory. It says in verse 8, And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who smote them and chased them unto great Zidon, and unto Misrephoth Maim, and unto the valley of Mizpah eastward. And they smote them until they left them none remaining. If you look at Megiddo, you've got the valley that comes up from the Jordan Valley. And then it comes to the bottom. You can see Mount Carmel right here, the, the, the relief mass. And then there's a Y. The valley turns to the north and goes out to the sea. And then to the left, the hills kind of become flatter and you can connect to the coastal plain here. So it kind of splits. And that's what happened. The Israelites chased them to the sea and uh, toward Zidon. Zidon's to the north, you know, modern day Lebanon. So they chased them out that while, both ways, until none were left remaining. It wasn't Israel that delivered itself, it was God who delivered them. We kind of skim over the book of Joshua sometimes and don't realize what miraculous victories these were. This wasn't normal military engagement as in the ancient world. These were miraculous victories. If you go into chapter 12, verse 19, it says that talks about the different kings that were um, conquered there in the north. It says the king of, let's see, uh, let's see verse 19, the king of Madon won, the king of Hatsor won. And then we get down to verse 21. The king of Tanakh won. The king of Megiddo won. So this, this battle was connected there. Uh, this was roughly... The, the conquering of Canaan took about seven years from the time Israel crossed the Jordan until they settled down in the land. You can figure this out chronologically quite easy from the Scriptures. It was a seven-year campaign. So somewhere around 1444 B.C. is when this took place. And um, God gave them great victory. Turn to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. What happened there in Joshua 11 is a prophetic picture of what's going to happen there. The Lord will deliver and the people will be scattered and not one will be left. Not one of the enemies that are gathered together against Messiah will be left. 
In fact, Zechariah tells us that what will happen to them is like what happened to the guy that peers into the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. His eyes fall out of their sockets and his face melts. That came straight out of the, that came straight out of the Bible. That's where they got that from, Zechariah 14. Judges chapter 4, this would have been about 184 years after the victory there near the waters of Merom. You see, Israel did not obey God and completely drive out the inhabitants of the land. They thought they would be tolerant. And that tolerance, that love they had for the inhabitants that God told them to drive out ended up turning them away from God. The same thing happens in the church today. The only thing men ever learn from history is that men never learn from history. About 1260 B.C., we have the events of Barak and Deborah, Judges chapter 4 and 5. It says, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. Ehud was a judge. And the Lord said, uh, sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hotsor. Hotsor was this city that was destroyed, but people were allowed to move in there again and rebuild. And as a result, the idolatry came back. And that, that allowing of the idolatry to come back ultimately turned into one of Israel's oppressors. Reigned in Hatsor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harusheth of the Gentiles. This is the area of Galilee. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron. And 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. So for 20 years, this Canaanite general with 900 chariots of iron, that's quite a few chariots in ancient times oppress the people. And there was a prophetess at the time, Deborah. Just because Deborah was a prophetess doesn't mean it's okay for women to be preachers and pastors of local churches. That's the reasoning of a lot of people out here today. Even though Paul says there very clearly in Timothy that, he, what, that, that, that women are not to teach or usurp authority over men in the church. They're to focus on their very important role, which is to raise up godly seed. But people look at that and say, well, Deborah was a prophetess, so it must be okay for people to, women to pastor churches. That's called resting the scriptures to your own destruction. That's called foolishness. So that didn't mean anything. Deborah was a prophetess. She was a wife, so she was submitted to a husband. And she judged Israel by... Speaking truth. It wasn't in the context of a local church. Old Testament Israel and the New Testament local church are not the same. They're not a replacement one of another. She dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel and Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So she dwelt south, more toward Jerusalem in the hills north of town. She sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kedesh Naphtali, which is the area of Galilee, the place where this oppression was happening, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun. Naphtali and Zebulun is the area it's prophesied in the 
book of Isaiah that Messiah would come and be a light in a dark place. It's the very place. He'd be a light in a dark place. His ministry would be centered in Naphtali and Zebulun. That's exactly what happened when his ministry was centered in Galilee. And I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver them into thine hand. So here we had a prophetess not taking charge herself, but obeying God and calling a man, basically a nobody, from an area that the rest of Israel kind of neglected. And he came and he was called to lead. And then what you see happen, I think, is the reason why a lot of times well-meaning Christians or well-meaning sisters in Christ step into leadership and, and assert authority that's not given them. They end up being there because of this same type of thing here. And Barak said unto her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you won't go with me, I will not go. Wimpy men. Men in the church don't do their job and they're spineless, and they're wimps, and as a result, the women have to step up. So a lot of times you can blame the men for the women involved in ministry in ways that they're told not to be as far as leadership. So don't blame the women. It's the same thing over and over and over again. So Deborah said, okay, I will go with you, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor. So in other words, okay... Since you're not willing to just go and take the leadership, I'll go with you. But when it's all said and done, people aren't going to remember you when it comes to the victory. They're going to remember a woman. And it's funny because when Jewish people talk about this today, it's always the woman's name that comes up. Always. There are fools back when Obama was president, Barack Obama was president, who actually claimed that the barrack of Judges 4 was a prophecy of Obama and the United States. I mean, fools. You mess with God's Word, He messes with your mind. I remember when they had the Democratic National Convention down in Charlotte, and we went down there and preached. There were street artists with paintings and T-shirts talking about Barack Obama was in the Bible. Fools. They all deserve each other. So... Deborah arose and went with Barak, and they went up. This army came out, talks about uh, they came out into the valley. Uh, The Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak. Now, Mount Tabor is on the north side of the valley of Jezreel. So you get a great view of the valley from the top of Mount Tabor. I've actually climbed up the backside of Mount Tabor. It's not a huge mountain. It looks somewhat like uh, uh, you've got this little mountain up here off of I-40 called Mount Hildebrand. It's just a, a knob, a hill. And it's a slog up there. I climbed up the side of it a couple of weeks ago in the middle of the woods. Uh, but that's Mount Tabor. And uh, Mount Tabor's right there on the edge of the valley. So that's where this took place. Some people try to say that Tabor is where Jesus took Peter, James, and John to be transfigured before them. In fact, there's a Catholic church, or maybe it's an Orthodox church, on top of Mount Tabor today called the Church of the Transfiguration. Well, the problem with that reasoning is the Bible says Jesus took them into an exceeding high mountain. 
That's not what that is. In fact, there are other mountains around there that are just as high. It kind of stands out by itself. Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the only place around there that's an exceeding high mountain. And you can see it from a long way away. It's got snow on it all year. Mount Hermon, which was in the far north. That was quite a hike. But of course, you know, the Catholics and stuff come in there and they claim these places. And now there's a little church up there. And I, I hiked up the backside and I went in the church. It was one afternoon. And it was just shocking to see not even, not Catholics per se or Orthodox, but like these groups. A lot of these groups from Africa take these, some of these African countries that actually have Christian governments will actually sponsor their people to send them to Israel to take tours like Uganda and other places like that. But these are, these, that's what one of these groups was. And they were in there like, there's like some rock in there. They claim Jesus was transfigured on it. And these people were in there like laying their iPhones on it and spread out on it and doing all this superstitious garbage. It's not even the right location. Mount Tabor, on the slopes of Mount Tabor and before Mount Tabor is where this battle took place. It says in chapter 5, so there's great victory. And this army of chariots is overthrown. Sisera ends up dying at the hands of a woman. He is fleeing and goes into a tent. The woman, Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, a Kenite was, was uh, somehow uh, related to Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Eber goes back to that descendant of Abraham from where we get the word Hebrew. Uh, she invited him in and he asked for water. She gave him a glass of milk. He fell asleep. And as he was lying there in her tent, she took a tent peg and a hammer and, put, and nailed that tent peg right through his temples and pinned his head to the ground. And he was done. And when the battle was all said and done, uh, they don't remember the general, the great general Barak who led the army. What's remembered is Jael. In fact, there's Israelis named that today. They remember her and her victory or her, uh, 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 her killing of this wicked general. So exactly what God said would happen. Men failed to took leadership. God, you know, the honor goes to a woman. That's what happened. It says in, in chapter 5, we have the song of Deborah and Barak praising God for the victory. And it tells us in ver verse 19, the kings came and fought. They fought, then fought the kings of Canaan in Ta'anak by the waters of Megiddo. So that's where this happened. Ta'anak, the waters of Megiddo. That was a place mentioned just a while ago in Joshua 11. Judges 5, if you, if you read that song, it's actually, I believe, a prophetic picture of Armageddon that transcends this particular Battle. It says in verse 20, They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. In the day of the battle of Armageddon, the stars in their courses will fight against the armies of this earth. Him on the white horse and the saints in heaven that follow him. It says, uh, and then in verse 31, So, just like this which has been described, let all thine enemies perish, O Lord. But that let them that love him be as the sun when he goeth forth in his might. And the land had rest 40 years. That's exactly what takes place in Revelation 19. The enemies perish 
And them that love the Lord come behind him in white horses, shining with, as the brightness of the sun. And they'll shine as the sun forever, the Bible says elsewhere. So here we have not only a battle that took place historically in the valley of Megiddo, but a type of God's victory over the heathen. His deliverance of Israel against overwhelming numbers in the last days. And we just need to flip the page to Judges 7. Judges 7 is a story of Gideon and the Midianites. This would have taken place about 27 years after Barak's victory over Jabin and his general Sisera. This would have been about 1233 B.C. And again, we have an example not so much of men defeating their enemies, but of men standing by and watching God defeat them. It's what happened with Joshua. That's what happened with Deborah and Barak. And that's what happened here. Sometimes when there's problems that we can't fix, the best thing to do is what it says there in Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. Just be still. Moses said, be still and watch the salvation of the Lord. He will fight for you today. And here we have this again with Gideon. In fact, God whittles his numbers down to 300 people. They'll go against this Midianite army that was gathered like locusts in this valley. And it's kind of funny to read about exactly what happened because I think we see the same thing happening in our society, even with our military and with our government today. Judges chapter 7, verses 16 and following, and he divided the 300 men into three companies. There was a place where they drank out of a stream and based upon how the men drank, they were either sent home or they were kept. You know, those that were afraid were allowed to go home. Those that put their face down on the water and lapped like dogs and didn't even pay attention to what was going on around them, they were sent home. And the ones that were kept were the ones who maintained their awareness as they lapped the water. They didn't let their guard down. And God says, with these 300, I'm going to deliver the Midianites. So... Gideon divided them into, into three companies of a hundred men each. And he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. So not a sword, not a dagger, but a trumpet and pitchers or clay pots. And he said unto them, look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall you do. Not do as I say, but do as I do. When I blow with the trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow you the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and say the sword of the Lord and Gideon. So Gideon and the, and the hundred men that were with him came into the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch and they had put newly and they had but newly set the watch and they blew the trumpets and break the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and break the pitchers, and held the lamps in their left hands, and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and Gideon, of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried and fled. And the three hundred blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Bet-Shittah and Zerarath and to the border of Abel-Meholah unto Tabith. And, the, and then the men of Israel gathered themselves and pursued them. 
So you had 300 men breaking some clay pots and blowing trumpets. And this entire army was completely confused and ended up destroying each other and running off screaming into the night. God brought confusion upon people. God's not the author of confusion in the church. But boy, is he the author of confusion amongst the wicked. This is what Daniel described in chapter 9 as he prayed for his people. Confusion of face. A judgment of God that he had poured upon the people of Israel. I mean, he had sent the prophet to the king, to King Zedekiah, and said, Look, if you will humble yourself and go out to the king of Babylon and obey the Lord, then he will preserve you and he will preserve this nation. But the king refused to do it. Even in the face of overwhelming numbers, the writing was on the wall. There was no escape. So God gave a way for escape, but they were so confused spiritually that they couldn't even make a decision that benefited the nation. Confusion of face. Proverbs talks about people like this in chapter 26, verse 17. Slothful people that only hear what they want to hear. They're always saying, there's a lion in the streets, there's a lion in the streets. And then they sit on their rear end and do nothing. And before you know it, what they value is taken from them. That's the way we are here in America. A lion in the streets. Oh my goodness. I can't do that. You can't do that. Oh my goodness. We're without power for two or three days. Proverbs 28 one says, It's the wicked who flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. We live in a country when just a little tiny threat, we flee. We want to cater. We want to cave in. Why is it? It's confusion of face when people who are not even citizens of this country can march into the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol and scream profanities and curse the president and curse congressmen and march toward a a Republican congressman's office and nobody, not even the Capitol Police, do anything to stop it. Now, what would happen if I walked into the Parliament building in Nepal and started screaming and hollering about how wicked the government is. Those people have enough sense to remove me. We have freedom of assembly in this country, but that's not assembly. That's wickedness, and we're powerless to stop these fools. We're powerless to stop these illegals that aren't even here legally screaming and hollering profanity in our streets. We're powerless to stop them because we are what the Midianites are and we deserve it as a nation. We're powerless to stop the homosexual mafia and the trannies and all these people who are such a small portion of this population. We are the majority in this country and yet these little tiny groups of people are dictating everything we do and putting fear in our hearts. We are under God's judgment. We are confused just like the Midianites. We see it today. The Bible says in Daniel 2 when, it, when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream and it prophesied the great Gentile kingdoms that would arise. The fourth one we later see in Daniel chapter 7, I believe, uh, is this, this terrible beast. It's the Roman Empire that would arise. And the first manifestation of the Roman Empire was mighty and strong as iron. But then it's divided and it ultimately manifests itself in the last days as feet and toes of iron, but it's mixed with miry clay. It's, it's still 
formidable, but it's iron mixed with clay. It's compromised. It still has a lot of power, but it doesn't know how to use it. And that's so it's, it's weak. That's the final manifestation of the Gentile world kingdoms. And we see that here and today. This country is iron mixed with clay because of all. I mean, we bring these people in here. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in Watauga County. And they homeschool their children. And his wife is pregnant. And they've had their kids have been sick. And they've tried to go to the hospital there in Watauga County. And they refuse to treat their children because they haven't been vaccinated the way they think a child needs to be vaccinated. That means pumping him full of all these vaccines, some of which are supposed to prevent diseases that you can only get through sharing drug needles and sexual contact. You know, they want to give my kids a hepatitis B vaccine when they were infants. When hepatitis B is contracted through sexual contract, contact and drug use. I just laughed at them. You know, Jamie and I were talking about, you know, do we, we need to look at maybe getting some vaccines or something before we go to Argentina? I'm like, look, I've been vaccinated enough over the years. I think I got enough in my system. I've taken enough typhoid vaccines. They say it runs out here, runs out there. I, if, it, if what I've got in me now isn't going to stop it, nothing is. But they won't even treat that. And I just said, friend, here's the problem. If your skin was brown and you... We're here illegally, you could get your kids treated for free. I mean, your kids could be bringing all kinds of diseases that were eradicated in this country and you'd get free treatment. That's the problem. The problem's not your kids. The problem is you're the wrong color. That's a nation that's confused. Now they're crying for us to get all these vaccines. We wouldn't need them if we didn't allow the floodgates to open and people with diseases that were eradicated to just flood in here. Man, if I hear America is a nation of immigrants one more time, I'm going to throw up. I'm going to throw up. I don't even want to get, go down that road. These things are happening because we are a people who have turned our backs on God. We're like the Midianites. We're confused. So the blame, why do you blame the people who come here? They know they can come here. There's an open door. You can't blame them. Who wouldn't want to come here? You can blame the confusion and the foolishness and it ultimately goes back to the church who never stood up for what's right. That's right. It's our fault. But you know what? Even out of all that madness, sometimes God's do, God does things that make us scratch our head and marvel at His providence. I have a friend who, him and his wife have been praying for their oldest son who had turned his back on the Lord. They ultimately had to make some hard decisions as far as removing the financial underpinning and he went off to college uh, supporting himself, and there was a period of time there. And Long story short, while he was at college uh, and around people of you know, not the right crowd, there, there was a young man somehow associated with him that wasn't even an American. He was a student from Greece. You know, I don't know what his, you know, he probably was here, I don't know. But this student from Greece had recently come to the Lord, and this foreigner got in this young man's face about not walking with the Lord. And as a result, this young man got right, called his parents, humbled himself, repented. He's come home now. He's left the college. He's a totally changed person. And he's actually going 
with two young people that were on our team, Yeshua, to India next month to try to help this couple, this Indian couple in Goa reach the Israelis on the beaches. So God used somebody that wasn't a citizen to reach someone that should have known better. So praise God for that. America's a mission field. But we're, we're, we're confused. Iron mixed with clay. We deserve it. Three great Old Testament disasters. Who knows what terrible disasters took place in the valley of Megiddo? Philistines over Saul. Okay, Saul and Jonathan. Josiah. Josiah, Josiah perished going against the king of Egypt. The only other one I could find was the, the, the prophecy in Zechariah 12 of Armageddon. No, this is something that involved the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, well, in basically all of the judgment that God brought upon the house of Ahab through Jehu, the son of Nimshi, took place in the valley of Jezreel. And um, Jezebel perished there. The, the, the king of the, nor- the northern kingdom, the king of the southern kingdom, were murdered there. The house of Ahab was murdered there. It was a bloodbath. 2 Kings chapter 9. Jehu, the son of Nimshi. Elisha sent one of his servants to anoint Jehu to be the one to carry out judgment on the house of wicked Ahab and to rid the land of them. Jehu had already been anointed years before because when Elijah fled from Jezebel after the incident on Mount Carmel, God spoke to him in the still small voice, told him to get up off his rear end. He was to go anoint Hatzael as the king of Syria. He was to go anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as the king of Israel, and to anoint Elisha as prophet in his room. Now, perhaps there's a lesson there to be learned about Elijah. He was a faithful prophet. Don't get me wrong. He's got a role still to play in human history. But, you know, he's sitting there whining and moaning to God, and what God tells him to do, basically, is get up and go anoint his replacement. But So Jehu had already been anointed. It was probably, though, like Jeroboam when he was first anointed. He didn't, was like, what the heck's this all about? Who's this crazy guy? But then later, Elisha follows up and sends his servant to anoint him. And then Jehu goes, who was the general there, and he goes to carry out God's judgment against the house of Ahab. Now, Ahab had already been killed at the battle of Ramoth-Gilead. And, we're ta- and so Ahab himself wasn't murdered and cast into the vineyard of Naboth uh, as judgment. We're told elsewhere that Ahab did humble himself at one point in his life. And as a result of that, that judgment came upon uh, his son. Um, so uh, Jehu uh, drove in his chariot. They saw a man driving furiously. Uh, and he came upon King Jehoram, the king of Israel. Uh, in, 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 uh, in the valley there in Jezreel. And the king's like, what is it? Uh, Jehu, is there peace? And he said, how can there be peace when your wicked mother and her witchcrafts is still uh, holding power in this land? And then at that moment, the king knew he was in trouble and he turned to flee. And as a result, he got an arrow in the back. He died in his body. This was Jehoram, the son of Ahab was cast into the field of Naboth, Naboth the Jezreelite. That's what happened here in this valley, that Ahab wanted that vineyard. The guy wouldn't sell it, so they made up lies about him and it got the people to stone him, just like our government does here to try to go after the white people, make up lies, get a class warfare. That's all it is. It's an old trick. 
And uh, judgment was served here. Ahaziah, who was the king of Judah, was with his, uh, the king of Israel at the time and who was related to Ahab. If you go back and study, he was the grandson of King Ahab and he was also his son-in-law. So he was the grandson and he married someone that was of Ahab's house. So he was 50% the blood of Omri and Ahab. That's why he's not listed in the genealogies of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Three kings aren't listed, but not because Matthew didn't know his history, but because he was tracing the bloodline of David. And because of that wicked intermarriage where the righteous king of the south tried to be tolerant of the wickedness of the north, the bloodline was polluted, but yet it survived. And the, there were short reigns of short kings. And so those names weren't listed for a reason. Ahaziah was one of those. He tried to escape. He was killed as well. He, he was shot. He fled to Megiddo and he died there. So right there in this valley, the king of Israel and the king of Judah both were destroyed. Okay? We, we learn later that he finds Jezebel, who's an elderly woman now. He finds her. In Jezreel, if you look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 9, verses uh, 30, it says, uh, And when Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her face, and tired her head, and looked out of a window. So she made herself all up. She knew what was coming. I guess she thought she could carry... That fake beauty into the afterlife. I don't know. Same people like these elderly people sitting in some of these rest homes that are sitting on a bunch of money and I think they actually think they're going to take it with them when they could be sharing it with their family. She painted her face and tired her head and looked out of a window and as Jehu entered in at the gate, she said, had Zimri peace who slew his master? Zimri was a general who uh, slew the king of the north, Elah, the son of Baasha, and as a result, there was a brief civil war, and that's when Omri, the other general, came in and took power and founded the Ahab's dynasty. And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And there looked out to him two or three eunuchs. These would have been servants there in the house. They probably wouldn't have even been Jewish. And he said, Throw her down. So they picked her up and threw her down out of the window. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trod her underfoot. So they threw her out the window, and then Jehu took his horses, and they just ran over, stomped all over. And her blood splattered all over the, uh, the pavement there. And when he was come in, he did eat and drink, and said, Go now, this cursed woman, and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Wherefore they came again and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel. So this was in the place where that incident happened with Naboth's vineyard, and exactly what God said would happen, happened. And the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field in the portion of Jezreel, and that they shall not so that they shall not say this is Jezebel. You know, when I read these things, I realize that there's a payday coming for all these wicked people. 
that seemed to prosper. You know, there's a payday coming for that witch that almost got elected president. It's going to happen. And the righteous will rejoice. The righteous will rejoice. So there's a lot of bloodshed here. After this happened, the servants of Ahab's sons wanted to make sure they ended up on the right side. So they reached out to Jehu and Jehu said, okay, if you're... Allegiances to me, then bring me the heads of Ahab's sons. So they brought him the heads of 70 of Ahab's sons and sent them to Jezreel in a basket. And so the judgment was complete upon the house of Ahab. We see in chapter 10 um, that these things were carried out. Jehu was commissioned by God to eradicate the house of Ahab. That's what he was told to do. And he was very zealous. But Jehu had a problem. He's a classic example of zeal gone too far. And it turns into apathy. You know, he bragged to one of his friends that got up in the chariot in chapter 10, come and see my zeal for the Lord. He was prideful about it. Look at me. Look what I've done. Not look what the Lord has done, but look what I've done. And as a result, his guard comes down. Later on in chapter 10, he goes beyond the commandment of the Lord. And we would look at this and we'd be all, you know, we'd be all like riled up. And yes, you know, this is good. And he deceives the prophets and the worshipers of Baal. There were a lot of people up there in the northern kingdom who were worshiping Baal. And there were still prophets there. And so he deceives them. He says, you know, if you think Ahab worshiped Baal, wait till you see what I'm going to do. And so they, they, they put together a, a planned a huge festival and invited all the prophets of Baal and all the worshipers of Baal. And they brought them into a great banqueting hall. And he told his guards to make sure that no worshipers of the Lord ended up in there. And so he went in there and he, uh, he inaugurated this festival. He himself offered up a burnt offering to Baal or Baal. And it was all a ruse. And once the burnt offering was offered, he came out and told his guards to go in there and slay everyone in there. Kill everyone in there. And it says there in chapter 10... Um, and they brought forth the images out of the house of Baal and burned them. And they break down the image of Baal and break down the house of Baal and made it a drought house unto this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. Okay, you think, all right, great, man. The zeal got rid of the prophets of Baal, used deception to do it. Killed a lot of his fellow countrymen that were worshiping Baal. God never told him to do that, though. He, he was commissioned to eradicate the house of Ahab. And this was an example of zealousness gone too far. And what happened? The very next verse. How be it from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, Jehu departed not from after them to wit the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. So in other words, he prided himself on ridding the land of Baal worship, but was too blind to see that idol worship continued. And that he remained an idol worshiper. It was zealousness gone beyond the commandment of the Lord, and as a result, it became apathy. We've got to be careful of these people who in the name of Christ seem so zealous, and they don't have a consistent testimony of that. 
And that zealousness gets intent. And in the next day, or down the road, it's complete apathy. Or the zealousness they once had is gone and they don't serve the Lord at all. I think we've seen this in our church. It's a classic example. Going beyond the commandment of the Lord, convinced God's told you to do something, you're zealous one day and the next day you walk away from it all. Or you're so blind you can't see the forest for the trees. You're zealous and you speak out against a particular sin, then down the road you commit the same exact thing and you're too blind to see it. These things are written for our admonition. It says that in 1 Corinthians 10. Why are these things recorded? For our admonition so we don't fall into the same trap and we should know better. But we don't. Most Christians wouldn't even know who the heck Jehu was. They wouldn't know him from a tree in their front yard. But these things were written for a reason. And we're too uh, lazy to seek them out. So there was a bloodbath in Jezreel, a great tragedy whereby the king of the northern kingdom, the king of the southern kingdom were murdered. Uh, It led to uh, continued idolatry in the north and the south. It led to Athaliah, the queen mother, becoming a a tyrant. And little baby Joash, the the messianic line, hung by a thread. And the high priest and his family rescued the little baby Joash from the purge of the queen. And as a result, the messianic line continued. And then it got so messed up later that when King Joash grew up, he got his panties in a wad over something. And those that were responsible for saving him, he ended up going after them. I mean, just utter confusion. Because people had turned away from the Lord. A great tragedy in the valley of Jezreel. Actually, I, I, I skipped over the disasters. That was the second one, King Jehu, 2 Kings 9. The first one, of course, was what was mentioned earlier, the death of Saul and Jonathan and the Israelites who uh, perished there at the hands of the Philistines. Jehu's incident would have happened about 170 years after King Saul perished on the mountainside of Gilboa. So Jehu's uh Story there was about 885 B.C. Back in 1055 B.C. is where Saul and Jonathan perished. The Israelites were defeated there in the Jezreel Valley by the Philistines. Now what's interesting is when you go back and read this, we have the story of the witch of Endor and how Saul had banished all the fortune tellers and witches from the land, but he was so desperate, he kept seeking and seeking the Lord and there was no response because his heart wasn't right. And he was so desperate, Samuel was dead, that he decided he needed to go consult the witch at Endor. He heard that there was one back there, and he visited her. Now, when you go to Israel and you look at the geography there, you can stand on the Mount of Gilboa and look north over this valley. And across the valley on the other side is where Endor would have been. There's a small hill over there. So what you see is not only did Saul seek out a witch, he actually had to sneak through enemy lines to get back there. Because the Philistines were gathered on the north side of the valley, Israel was gathered on the southern side of the valley, he had to get around enemy lines. He put his life at risk through enemy lines to go seek out this witch. I mean, it wasn't like just they just happened to have their headquarters down the street from from a witch. He had to go behind enemy lines to get there. It was a risky endeavor. When you read this, though, this fortune teller who was ultimately a fraud, 
you know, she was shocked when the one that she consulted actually came back. You know, he, he, he asked her to, to consult Samuel. And uh, so she did, and it tells us that when she did, she herself was quite surprised. 1 Samuel 28, verse 12. Actually, uh, the woman says to Saul, whom, whom shall I bring up unto thee? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? You're Saul. So she screamed in horror because Samuel actually answered. Was allowed to answer, and then she realized that she had been deceived. And then, of course, Samuel comes up and tells Saul in verse 19 that the Lord will deliver Israel into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. You'll be with me. The Lord also shall deliver of the host of the hand uh, the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. So this happened, as God said. The Israelites fled up the sides of Mount Gilboa from the Philistines. The Philistines chased them out of the valley up the mountain. And they caught up with Saul and his sons on the slopes of Gilboa. And Saul uh, was wounded nigh unto death and ended up uh, trying to get his armor bearer to kill him. And he wouldn't and he fell on his sword. Now David was supposed to be involved in this battle. He had gone and fled and made friendship with one of the kings of the Philistines, and they brought him and his mighty men with them to join in battle against Israel and Saul. And David was willing to go. I believe he was willing to go, not because he wanted to fight Saul, but I believe he would have, they would have, uh, his men would have come and ambushed the Philistines. But the Philistines knew that there was something not right here, and so they sent David away. And he and his men returned to find that the Amalekites had taken their wives and children captive. And he ended up overthrowing the Amalekites while this took place. So God didn't allow David to have a part in this or to have to be faced with fighting against the one whom he didn't want to touch. So God in his sovereignty kept that from happening. But Saul was killed on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. You know, Israel demanded that they have a king. God had promised them He would give them kings. He made this promise to Abraham. It was spoken by Moses, but in His timing. And the people weren't willing to wait. So God said, all right, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. And so God gave them a king. And God told Saul that if you will honor me and follow me and lead the people, I will bless you. But Saul didn't do it. The people chose their leader. And this is what happened. It was interesting. I was in Israel a few years ago. It was election day. It was the election that Obama and the American government meddled in in Israel to try to prevent the conservative uh, uh, parties from winning or Netanyahu from being reelected. So it's funny how the wicked people, they actually take the very things that they do out in the open and they accuse their enemies of doing it. You know, we hear all this Russian collusion and, you know, presidents shouldn't be meddling in foreign elections. Our president openly tried to meddle in Israel's election several years ago. And we were over there on election day. And if you talk to people and you read the media, you thought there's no way that Netanyahu will be reelected. There's no way that the conservatives will have any power. That these liberal far left parties who are going to give up land for peace are due for a landslide. I mean, they were saying the same things like they're saying about us now 
in the, the House and Senate races later this year. It's going to be a blue landslide. And so we were thinking, oh, well, you know, what, you know every, I guess we deserve it. I guess they deserve it. And so on election day, people typically go to the polls in Israel, and then they take the day off. And they just they take their families out. They go hike and things like that and just wait to see. And so that particular day, I had wanted to drive the highway up Mount Gilboa because I heard there was a great view of the Jezreel Valley, and there's supposed to be a lot of wildflowers up there. So I drove up there, and as a result... There were tons of people. I couldn't even find a parking place on the side of this rural highway. Like, what is this? People walking around, hiking, whatever. And I found out that that's what they do on election day. So I went up to the top of Mount Gilboa, and I thought, you know, I really ought to take advantage of the opportunity to share the gospel here, but I don't know what to do. I really should preach, but I was scared to death. But I realized that I had a great message that could easily be preached in the very place you know these people are going out and they're choosing their own leaders today and Israel once did that and didn't consult God and in the very place that they were searching for wildflowers that leader they selected perished and so I preached a message in the open air up there about Saul and about the danger of not consulting God of not seeking God of thinking that men can deliver you You know, Israel has made this mistake time and time again. They put their faith in a man and they forgot about the God of their fathers. And I preached that. And then I talked about Messiah. And there were people standing around and I didn't didn't know what the reaction would be. I was kind of nervous. And then when I stopped preaching, I heard... And all these people started clapping. So I got to give out a few tracts, and it was, it was a powerful message that needed to be heard. And of course, things didn't go like the media said they were going to go there in Israel. And things never happen like we think they will. But uh, it was an interesting way to use this story here to declare the gospel. I've got a picture of that where there's a young man with a, a beanie on and glasses, and he's kind of standing there like this as I'm preaching. And he stood there the whole time and listened. And so I praise God. I remember Mount Gilboa and the death of Saul in a personal way. So we've got the death of Samuel, of Saul and Jonathan, the defeat of Israel there in the valley to the Philistines, the incident with Jehu, and God's judgment against the house of Ahab. And then the third great tragedy we've already talked about before. This is in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. And it involved, it was truly a tragedy. There's place times in history where truly righteous men, godly men, are tragically killed at a young age. And we wonder, man, why? Why would that happen? What these people could have done for the Lord. And then we question God. Instead of questioning God, it's just real. It's, what, it's life. It's life on this cursed planet. And when we think of the most tragic deaths of godly men in all of history, this has to be one of them. This has to rank near the top. 2 Chronicles 35, verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish. This is where his army came up in alliance with the remnants of the Assyrian Empire that had already been overthrown to check the Babylonians. To check them. Just like Charles the Hammerer and his armies tried to check the spread of Islam in Europe years ago. 
they actually defeated the Muslims and drove them out of Europe and saved, it, saved Europe from Islam. God probably never would have dreamed that some centuries later, the people that He delivered, the descendants of the people He delivered would be welcoming the descendants of the barbarians that they kicked out. Welcoming them with open arms. Unbelievable. But He sent ambassadors to Him saying, okay, I'm sorry, and He came up to fight against Carchemish by Euphrates. We talked about this. The king of Egypt's beef was with Babylon, not Judah. And Josiah went out against him. But he sent ambassadors to him saying, What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I'm not come against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, forbear thee from meddling with God, who is with me, that he destroy thee not. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him, and hearkened not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God, and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. So Megiddo is both a hill and a valley. And that's very evident when you visit that place. And the archers shot at King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Have me away, for I am sore wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died and was buried in one of the sepulchres of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Young men went out to fight a fight that wasn't his. And as a result, he perished. It was tragic. Josiah was the only one it said of in the scripture that he sought the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he went out to pick a fight that wasn't his. I'm reminded of the Proverbs that he that meddleth with strife not belonging to him is like somebody that takes a dog and yanks it by the ears. I've yanked a dog by the ears before. And even with the friendliest dog, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. Gene, you may want to try that. Maybe it'll stop the barking. But, uh, or give you an excuse to get bit and then to carry out justice. I better be careful what I say. That's, that's a capital crime in this country. You can murder umpteen millions of unborn babies, but God forbid you speak roughly to a dog. Good gracious. Confusion. But we had the death of King Josiah. I, I, I suspect that Josiah saw the writing on the wall. He knew what was happening with Babylon. And he made efforts to try to get the ark of God somewhere where it could be protected. And this may have been a ruse to protect that mission. And as a result today, no one still knows where the ark is. We don't know, but we had a righteous man meet his end. Tragedy. That's happened throughout history. You know, it was a tragic loss for the South when it lost its greatest general. One of the godliest and most righteous men that's ever donned a military uniform in this country, General Jackson. Accidentally shot by his own men. It's tragic. The great gospel preacher and songwriter Keith Green perishes in a plane crash. With two of his children at such a young age. That's tragic. I'm sure we can think that about others in our lives personally or you know, historically. It's, it's life. And sometimes we get angry with the Lord. But it says in Isaiah that the righteous perish. That's a fact. Godly men are taken away. That's a fact. 
But nobody ever stops to ponder, I think this is Isaiah 57, that the righteous are being delivered from the evil to come. It's a tragedy. Three great victories for Israel, three great disasters in this significant place. But beyond Israel's history, it's been a place where militaries have clashed, militaries have marched. There's been more battles historically in this place than any other place uh, on the planet. And it's where it's all going to come crashing down. It's where it's all going to end. You might could say there was a fourth tragedy related to Israel involving the valley of Jezreel. Um, It says in Hosea, there's a prophecy here about the people of Israel, the northern kingdom. God's going to carry them away captive. And he had Hosea remain faithful to his wife who had turned to the occupation of a prostitute and to take her back and to have children with her and to be faithful to her despite her unfaithfulness as a an object lesson to the northern kingdom that the people of Israel were, were whores spiritually and yet God remained faithful to them. And it tells us in chapter 1 that Hosea took this daughter of a pro, this prostitute as his wife. Her name was Gomer and then he remained faithful to her and she bared him a son. His first son, verse 4, And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. So we know that Jehu went beyond what God called him to do, which was to eradicate the house of Ahab. But his his zealousness went too far, and therefore his house is being avenged. And God told Jehu, because you obeyed me where Ahab is concerned, I'm going to let your descendants reign until the fourth generation. And that's exactly what happened. The fourth descendant from Jehu, uh, I believe his name was Zechariah, only reigned for a few days and he was murdered uh, and his kingdom was taken from him. And Hosea prophesied this, that that would happen because of Jehu's going beyond God's commandment. And this child was named Jezreel. I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. So this child was named Jezreel because in this place God would avenge Jehu's overzealousness and he would bring an end to the northern kingdom. The valley of Jezreel actually became a capital of the Assyrian province when the Assyrians came and led the northern kingdom out captive. And it became a capital of the Assyrian province. And later the Romans would station a garrison there. So it became a place for foreign troops on Israel's land, foreign invaders to station soldiers. It was a very important military crossroads. And so the Assyrians who carried out Israel captive which would by nature have been by way of the Jezreel Valley, established a military capital there. That's a great tragedy. So the northern kingdom of Israel was led captive in 722 B.C., the fall of Samaria, and they were led captive and marched right out, just like a bunch of cows with hooks in their noses, Amos says. He said all these rich women that are gossiping and blabbing and leading 
the men of this country astray, all these fat cow feminists in Israel. I mean, that's the language Amos used. Don't get mad at me. That's what he says. You're going to have hooks put in your nose and you're going to be led out like the cows that you are. And they were led out and marched off by the king of Assyria right through the Jezreel Valley. There's some pretty blunt language uh, that the prophets used against the people. Maybe we need to take a lesson from that when we speak about the problems in this country. But it was a, the route whereby Israel was led captive. And the kingdom, the northern kingdom, was brought to an end. It's the place whereby the ten tribes left. They're called the ten lost tribes today. But we know that when Israel is restored, that those tribes are not lost. They have a place in the millennial kingdom. So ironically, it's the place they left. And we know that this highway involving the Euphrates brings the armies together and it's paving the way for the the remnant to return. So it's the same place whereby the tribes will one day return. Megiddo or Jezreel was so well known even after the time of Christ that Eusebius and Jerome, who were historians, Greek, I mean uh, Roman historians, they, would, they used it as a point of reference for measuring distances in this region. So Megiddo was used as a point of reference to measure distances uh, to other areas in that region, even as late as Eusebius and Jerome, which would have been around 300 A.D., 400 A.D. So a very unique place. Modern history... Uh, the Valley of Megiddo was actually very important in what led to the British mandate and the establishment of the modern state of Israel. There was actually a pretty big battle in the Valley of Megiddo in 1918. It's called the Battle of Megiddo. What war was that? World War I. We don't ever read about this stuff. It was September 19th through the 25th, so it was a week-long battle. And it involved General Allenby and the British Army who fought against the Ottoman Turks. In World War I, you had the Germans and Austria-Hungary aligned with the Ottoman Empire, which was an Islamic empire in the Middle East. The Ottomans had controlled the land of Israel for many, many years. But they they had been a powerful Islamic army that people feared, but internally they were very weak. They were typical... Muslim army. The typical Muslim army has a large, a loud bark, but a very weak bite. It's always been that way. And when you stand up to them, historically, they flee. Um, and that's the way to defeat Islam. You stand up against them. But we're too weak to even do that. They're like dogs. You know, you show a little chuspa right back in their face, they run. September 19th through 25, the British army literally destroyed the Ottoman Turks. In fact, of their huge force, six, only 6,000 escaped. I mean, the Ottomans were so weak in World War I, it actually su- surprised the Allies how weak and how easily they crumbled and fell away. But this battle of Megiddo in 1918 actually paved the way for the British to assume control of that area the establishment of the British mandate after World War I, whereby the British controlled uh, the land of Palestine or the land of Israel, and then north, uh, the French 
control what is modern-day Lebanon and part of Syria. It paved the way for the British mandate, and then out of the British mandate, the modern state of Israel was formed. So Megiddo was significant in that bringing about that fulfillment of prophecy, God regathering his people. The battle of Megiddo involved fighting in the plain of Sharon, in Jezreel, at Megiddo itself, and in the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the Kidron Valley near Jerusalem. So that the battle spilled out from this place into these other surrounding valleys, exactly what's described in Revelation. So none of this is... Uh, unique or hard to believe. It's happened before. Uh, Types have happened before. Armageddon is actually uh, not just a battle, what we see here in Revelation. It's not just a battle, it's a campaign. There are two phases. Be patient with me and I'll finish. I've got 15 more minutes as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Armageddon's two phases. It's a campaign and a battle. With the sixth vile judgment here, we have the gathering to the battle. Daniel describes this. This isn't just a single battle. There's a military campaign that brings about this gathering. It tells us in Daniel chapter 11 that Antichrist is going to get nervous because he hears rumors He hears rumors out of the east. The king of the north, the king of the south, begin to rebel and come against him. And so there's a campaign of rebellion that results in these armies being gathered together. It says that Antichrist will be troubled because of tidings out of the east. And therefore he goes forth furiously to try to stop any rebellion. He's fighting with the king of the north, the king of the south. He puts his headquarters right there in Jerusalem. So there's a campaign that leads up to this gathering. The sixth vial is the gathering. You know, with the rise of Antichrist, he comes bringing promises of prosperity, economic success, and peace on earth. It begins with man-made peace on earth and tolerance. and Everybody buys into it. But just like every single other effort at man-made peace in all of history, what it ultimately results in is bloodshed, rebellion, prison camps, and mass graves. That's what happens. When man attempts to establish peace on earth apart from God and His Word, what you get is prison camps, bloodshed, mass graves, and rebellion. So... Though I appreciate some of the things that are happening in our country today, some of the directions we see things going economically, where taxes are concerned, these things benefit us. But please understand that when we talk about America great again without any concept of God and His Word and refusing to see the sins of this country and making amends to change them and repent, we're just building up a false peace that leads to bloodshed. There can be no talk of making America great again without acknowledging its sin. The sin of abortion, the sin of of homosexual marriage, the sin of despising God's Word and blaspheming God's name and taking Him out of government, the widespread sin of idolatry that happens in our our sports stadiums that will happen next week. Hey, I love sports. I love football. I love basketball. Yesterday was a hard day for both me and Bob. But my goodness, it's a stupid game. 
my life doesn't change because of a game. But that's the way America is. All of these things happen and we don't even realize our freedoms are taken away because we care more about roll tide. There's people in Alabama, they allowed, they allowed that wicked liberal communist to get elected over a truly righteous man and they cared more about Alabama football. That's why people like that get elected. That's just it. We're a nation of idolaters. I'm tired of Alabama football. I'm sorry. <laughs> Come on, let's get somebody new in there. <laughs> but anyway, until we recognize our sins as a nation, how can we be great again? It starts with repentance. God told Israel, when my people are called by my name, humble themselves and repent and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll heal their land. We can praise God for the blessings, but let's don't forget that any peace, any prosperity that doesn't begin with repentance, it, it ends up just like Antichrist, kingdom of peace on earth. Man-made peace on earth. When we look at Psalms 2, we talked about this last week, you know, these kings are gathered to fight each other, but then they unify to turn on the Lord. And this gathering that happens at Megiddo, this battle, then spills out into the surrounding areas. It involves a march on Jerusalem. We learn about this in Joel chapter 3, where God avenges Israel on the heathen in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision. The valley of Jehoshaphat is the Kidron Valley that drops from Jerusalem all the way down to Jericho. So from Jezreel, it spills out the coastal plain down the Jordan River Valley and then what's left, these armies converge upon Jerusalem and it spills out. So really Megiddo is more a staging point for one last-ditch effort to stop Messiah in a march on Jerusalem. It says in Joel chapter 3 that... Uh, let's see... Uh, I will gather all nations. That's what we see here with the sixth vial. And then I will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley of Jehoshaphat's not the Megiddo Valley. It's outside Jerusalem from Jericho on up. And I will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. And then it goes on to say, uh, um, verse 12, Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put you in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Exactly what we read there in chapter 14. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitude, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So we have a gathering, which is the sixth vial at Megiddo, armies against each other, who then unite against Messiah, because Jesus said that the sign of the Son of Man will be in the heavens right before. They'll see the sign, they'll know He's coming. And then they'll unite to turn on him and God will bring them down against Jerusalem and there he'll judge them. I think what you see here in Joel chapter 3 is goes with Zechariah 14 when Messiah puts his foot on the Mount of Olives and defeats the Antichrist. He's broken without hand. And it also is reflected in Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats. Matthew chapter 25. It says when the Son of Man comes and sits on his own throne 
Not sitting at the right hand of God. Not sitting on His Father's throne, but on His own throne, which is the throne of David. Matthew 25 is not talking about the church. It's not talking about if you do humanitarian things, then you're saved. And if you don't, you don't. This is a judgment of nations, not individuals. When He sits on His own throne, it says He will separate the, the nations as sheep from goats. And it said that He will judge them based upon how they treated His brethren. His brethren are the Jewish people who will be terribly persecuted during these last days. And Jesus will judge them. It says here in Joel that there will, will, um, will God sit to judge the heathen and there He will plead with them for His heritage Israel. That's exactly what we see in the parable of the sheep and the goats. So it will be the place that the armies are overthrown and it will be the place that those, those of the nations that survive will be judged according to God's heritage Israel. So I think that plays in um, the culmination of this great battle is in Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos who was among the herdmen of Tekoa which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah king of Judah and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel two years before the earthquake and he said the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. So we're going to see there's a great earthquake coming up. And in the days of King Uzziah, which was also, uh, and the day Uzziah died is where Isaiah in chapter 6 saw the Lord high lifted up. There was an earthquake, and the people literally ran for their lives. And so when God roars from Zion, when Jesus comes back, people are going to be running for their lives. There's not going to be a fight. And so the Lord will roar. You know, um, Zechariah tells us in chapter 14 that uh, at the culmination of this battle, when he treads the winepress, that his foot will stand on the Mount of Olives and it will cleave in the middle. Half of the mountain will move toward the north, half of the mountain will move toward the south, and as a result, a valley will open up. There's going to be other geographic changes in the land of Canaan that's going to radically change the land in the day of the millennial kingdom. They'll have to make new maps. The old maps won't work anymore. It'd be a totally different thing. But when we think about the gathering at the sixth vial and them turning on Messiah, I can't help but think of Acts chapter 1, and I want to include, include here today. The place where Jesus comes back, and we're going to see this described in more detail in chapter 19 of Revelation. The place where He comes back to overthrow or to fight against this gathering that takes place at Armageddon and then spills over to the feet of Jerusalem. It's an interesting place that Jesus has already been. It says in Acts chapter 1, talks about Jesus showed Himself alive for 40 days after His resurrection. Many infallible proofs. He clearly proved a whole lot of eyewitnesses, Jewish eyewitnesses, that He was risen from the dead. These eyewitnesses wrote down the New Testament for us. It says in verse 6, When they therefore were come together, they asked of Him, saying, Lord, wilt Thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? The disciples knew that that was prophesied. And then Jesus said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in His own power. 
But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea, all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So Jesus said, look, that's not your concern right now. He didn't say the church is replacing Israel. That's not really going to happen. This is all symbolic. He said, it's not for your, you to know the times that God has in his power. For now, you're to go out and be my witnesses. And then it says, and when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Probably the same two men that stood with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. The same two men who are going to preach outside that temple and cry against the wickedness of Antichrist and the foolishness of the Jews who have believed in this false Messiah. These same two men who will be martyred and then stand up in the, the earth will celebrate. And then they'll stand up in the streets and people will be full of fear. These two right men stood by which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen Him go. You know, when Jesus comes back, the, He's coming back to the same place He left. He left the Mount of Olives and He's coming back. And when He comes back, it can be said, as we'll see here, it, not it is finished, Paid in full on the cross, but it is done. The times of the Gentiles are over. It is done. And so we transition with this into the seventh vial. The sixth vial judgment is the gathering. It's the confusion in the kingdom of Antichrist. Rumors here, rumors there. People coming against each other. A war being drawn up and the armies being gathered. And then we get into the seventh vial, the rest of the scriptures which involves the actual return of Christ, the actual overthrow of these armies. And so um, we will get into that next week. Hopefully I can finish the chapter. What we'll see is the overthrow of the world system at the hands of Messiah involving the seventh vial. And then this overthrow is actually detailed. This sentence, this judgment is pronounced. In chapter 17 and 18, and then when we get to chapter 19, we're going to see how this judgment coincides with the rejoicing of the righteous and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then we're going to get the details about the second phase of Armageddon. When they turn, Psalm 2, when the heathen tell God and Messiah, we don't want you to rule over us. And God laughs, of course, at that. And uh, we see the heavens open and Messiah come down. So um, that concludes uh, today's message. So I hope that gave you a little better understanding of this place and uh, the significance of it in history and its significance in future history. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. I pray it would, uh, um, again, that we would be reminded as we were last week in verse 15 that when you come, you come as a thief. And that we need to watch and keep our garments, Lord. Lord, we need to tremble before your word and live as if we know and understand that these things are coming upon people we know and their descendants if you tarry. And so may that motivate us to speak the truth, to keep our garments, to be faithful, to wait upon you, not to 
become overzealous like Jehu and to fall into apathy, but to seek you and your will and to know it and your word. May this food give us uh, strength today. Bless our fellowship. And again, Lord, thank you for this church body and for bringing everyone back. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.